It's so good to be here. Great to sing with you, pray with you. There's a lot of great stuff happening here at FBC, isn't there? This is a good time to be here. And I'm especially excited for next week. For Easter, yes, but for our whole family to get together and to eat some food in the courtyard. So those of you who are online, we'd love to have you there. Um, we're going to do everything we can to make you feel comfortable. Uh, my name is Steve, and I am the senior pastor here. But let's begin by just raising a question this morning. What's one job that you've had that would surprise others to know that you had? You know, maybe it doesn't look like your particular skill set or your interests or fits your personality, but what's one job you've had that would surprise others to know that you did? Now, I'll share my answer with you in just a bit, but I want to bring a pre-pandemic staple of mine, also known as nudge your neighbor. Um, you know, we're going to take a couple of minutes. We're going to turn to the people around you. If you don't know them, introduce yourself. Share with them that one job that you, would, you, you think would surprise them to know that you had, and then tell them why, okay? And those of you online, do it with the people in, that you're watching the video with, or if it just by yourself, you like name it out loud or something like that. So you're joining in too, okay? So ready? Go. All right. Let's get back together here. I love all this chatter because it's good to do that again, isn't it? I love nudge your neighbor. It's like a staple. I love it. But what were some of those jobs that you guys mentioned? Just shout them out here. Just a few. Manicurist. I heard, what was the other one over here? Forklift driver. Okay. Any others? Walt, Walt Disney World Jungle Crew. That is Chris, my friends. Go talk to him afterwards. Okay. As for me, would it surprise you that during one of my Christmas breaks, I was had the job of gift wrapping? You know, I was the guy behind the counter that at that fancy clothing shop that you were shopping at at the mall, you know, who would wrap your gift because you didn't know how to, right? That's incredibly ironic to have me be doing that because, you know, most of my gift wrapping up to that point came in gift bags or, you know, looked something like this. Oop, there it is, you know. So... When, when they had hired me, they knew that there was a huge, extensive gift wrapping tutorial they needed to put me through, right? I mean, I had multiple videos and tests to pass before I could do this on the strategy for wrapping paper around a pretty box, right? How to make the edges crisp for the paper on the box, how to hide the seams, how to use the least amount of tape, and what tra the training stress is that no matter what I did, no gift wrapping was complete unless you had a bow on it, right? No matter how pretty I had done it up to that point, no how crisp the edges were, a gift wrapping that lacked a properly constructed bow in a properly placed place would not perfect it. I, I had to be able to put a bow on it. At least that's what my gift wrapping did 30 years years ago. That's, that's what I recall. So, in the spirit of my gift wrapping training, 
we're going to put a bow on the book of Ecclesiastes to finish up, to complete what we have been on since mid-January. I want us to put all of these pieces together into a whole that we've been looking at for so long, and it's been great. It has been great because I want each of us to walk out of here and say, you know what, I know what Ecclesiastes is about. It's a strange little book tucked away in the Old Testament, yes, but it's not that depressing like it's rumored to be. In fact, I remember how compelling it is so we learn how to live, especially when life doesn't add up because it doesn't always add up. And I want that for you. No matter if you've you know, only caught a few of these in here or you've been here the whole time or this is your first Sunday, you're going to get Ecclesiastes, the Spark Notes version, right? That's how we're going to put a bow on Ecclesiastes. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to take your Bible out. I want you to find your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 8 to 14, because this is how the preacher concludes all of Ecclesiastes. This is Spark Notes version of it. And he's going to try to drive it home to us. And if you grab one of those blue Bibles on the table beside you or on the chair in front of you, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8 is on page 559. And our children's coordinator, Tegan Hayden, is going to come up and help us hear this word from the Lord. So let's listen carefully. Ecclesiastes 12, 8 through 14. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything uh, beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Now, keep your Bible open, <clears throat> that Bible app handy, um, so that we can go a little bit more deeply than we get with just one hearing. Because the preacher basically ends here where he began with vanity. Almost verbatim, he repeats what he said all the way back in chapter 1, in verse 8, when he says that again, he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Vanity is something that he's been repeating about life, time and time and time again in Ecclesiastes. And here he emphasizes it yet once again, and repeating the word for good measure, you know, which is the ancient world version of us doing something like this, vanity. Vanity is what it amounts to. But remember, it, it doesn't mean it in terms of pride or emptiness or meaninglessness. 
But in the Hebrew sense of the word that's behind our English word, this word, uh, hebel. Literally, hebel is vapor, a, a breath. It's what we see on clear, cold mornings when we breathe out. That cloud that comes out of our mouth like this. That then disappears quickly as it appeared, no matter how cold it might be. That's Hebel, a vapor, a breath. And in the preacher's mind throughout Ecclesiastes, that's what everything amounts to. Hebel, the merest of breaths. Life, and so much of our life, is fleeting. Meaning it is short-lived like that vapor cloud we breathe out. And it's elusive. Meaning it's real like a, like a real mist, but we can't capture it. We can't grab it because it just eludes our grasp. And not only did the preacher tell us that our life is hebel repeatedly because death comes to us all, but he also points out how our quest for life and so many of our pursuits that we give our lives to, they're fleeting as well. They're elusive from our grasp. Wisdom in education, he says in chapter 1, verse 14. All sorts of pleasure in chapter 2, verse 1. Work itself in chapter 2, verse 23. Relational uh, meaning in chapter 4, verse 7. Wealth and honor in chapter 10, 5, verse 10. And youthfulness and vitality in chapter 11, verse 10. That's so often why life doesn't seem to add up so much of the time on this side of eternity. It's because life is Hebel. It's why we've had the anger, the anxiety, the, much of the disappointment we had the last two years with COVID, which has actually only clarified what's been rumbling underneath all along that we've kind of kept at bay. We so desperately want there to be profit, don't we? Leftovers from what we achieve what we build, what we do, what we acquire, and yet there is none because life is Hebel. Even to the point that we're all going to be quickly forgotten as quickly as we've forgotten our, who our great-grandparents are. This is a repeated facet of the preacher's repertoire in Ecclesiastes. And listen, this is not something for us to walk away and forget. In fact, this is something for us to... Keep in mind, when we're feeling angry, when we're feeling anxious, when we're disappointed, so that we can ask ourselves whether it's a matter of us expecting too much out of life that is Hebel, or God in that, or it's the actual circumstances we're facing. Maybe so many of our complaints and accusations of God would subside as we adjust ourselves to this reality of what life really is as God has given it to us on this side of eternity. It is Hebel. Now, maybe you've been wondering why the preacher would talk about this so much. And maybe for that reason, why Ecclesiastes would even be included in the Bible with such a negative kind of a thing. Its tone is a downer there, right? Its rhetoric is stark. Its organization is confusing even around this idea. That's what I feel when I've looked at Ecclesiastes. And I've heard it from many of you who said, you know, this book kind of has some harsh statements in here. 
But listen, there is a really good reason for the preacher doing this. And there's a really good reason why I wanted us to dive into it. The preacher, he's an accomplished man, yes. You can read about his LinkedIn profile there in verses 9 and 10 if you'd like. But even more than that, Ecclesiastes strips away any illusions that we may have about life and how God has given it on this side of eternity. That is, the preacher was doing this because the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. A goad was a staff with nails at the end that the ancient world shepherds used to poke their animals to keep them on the straight and narrow. It was the ancient world version of our modern day, you know, cattle prod. Nails were then as they were now, they attached two things together. And so this is telling us that Ecclesiastes is supposed to prod us toward life by nailing its truth, by nailing its reality into our hearts. And if that sounds painful, then you'd be correct. The preacher wasn't trying to sugarcoat anything for you and for me. He wasn't trying to soft sell us on life. He was using a goad and nails to prod us out of our illusions about life being about butterflies and cotton candy and nail that reality into us. And that's why moments, there's been moments in Ecclesiastes of real discomfort sometimes. I've felt it as I've said the words. Have you felt it sometimes? And there's times that it feels like a band-aid is being ripped off. I mean, after all, going through Ecclesiastes means you're going to be talking about lots of painful things. He touches on lots of uncomfortable subjects that we would like to ignore. The endless cycles of history he talks about in chapter 1. The hollowness of much that we seek in life in chapter 2. The uncertainty of time and chance that we have to deal with in chapter 3. The travesty of isolation and the real pain of it in chapter 4. Listening up and shutting down before God in chapter 5. The emptiness of money, honor, and even fame in chapters 5 and 6. The limits that we have as human beings and life itself in chapter 7. The eventual death that we all face and the obscurity of being forgotten in chapter 9. The spoil of folly in life, chapter 10. Doing nothing ensures that nothing is gained, chapter 11. And the painful realities of aging, chapters 11 and 12. None of that is painless. None of you were laughing right there as I was going through that list. But he was doing it to be, and to be so bluntly, it feels like it's picking at our scab. This sort of wisdom amounts to a goad, to a nail in our heart. But I don't want you to miss here who's ultimately using the goad and using the nails here. Don't miss how ultimately we are being shepherded here by God. 
Yes, the preacher is writing this for us. But behind his pen was God all along, carrying him along as the ultimate one who is goading us and nailing this truth to us. And so Ecclesiastes at some level is a, is a version of tough love for us to shake us out of the stupor, to get us to look at what we want to ignore so that we can help us to live the one and only life that he's given us. Life is Hebel. And to feel that vanity is to feel the pain of God's goads and nails in our life. That's why the preacher kept on poking us and prodding us, asking us, what will you truly do with life like that? What will you do with life being Hebel when you encounter that stark reality in the scriptures, when you experience that in the rough and tumble experiences of life? Will you just shrug your shoulders and decide to just let loose because it doesn't matter anyways? Will you just despair and curl up in the fetal position and just give up on life? Or will you do what the preacher has repeatedly commended to us, to look up and to look beyond the vanity to the God over all of it? Will you look to God as an anchor point for navigating the vanity of life so that you can take advantage of this one and only life you have without blowing it? Here's what the preacher does in summing up for us how we do that in the midst of all the vanity. It says this. It says the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man and woman. For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing. Whether good or evil. Since life is painfully hebel. The preacher directs us to anchor ourselves in God in three significant ways. The first... It's to fear God. This isn't about quaking in our boots because of appreciating what scary things God can do to us. This is about bending our knee before God because of seeing how truly awe-inspiring he is. God is sovereign, ruling over all people, history and creation. He's powerful enough to do what fits his purposes and loving enough to do what is good in them. Somehow seamlessly bringing both of those realities together into one. Remember how the preachers put it earlier. He said, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. God is so great. He does what he wants, which always aligns with his purposes. And he's so great 
that it endures without anybody able to mess with it and alter what God actually wants. God is the ultimate and final author from the beginning to the end, the preacher says. And so the preacher says, fear God. Bend your knees before him because he is sovereign and providential over it all and in a posture of worship before him. And in that posture, we end up discovering trust in him, especially in these mysteries that we don't understand. After all, we can't see the whole point of our lives from beginning to end much less the whole plot of the history of the world. But we can trust that God does, and that he's writing his story from a place of power, yes, but also goodness and justice. Somebody once asked the second Mrs. Einstein if she understood Professor Einstein's theory of relativity. And she said, no, I don't understand the theory of relativity, but I understand Professor Einstein. That's all I need. To understand God is sovereign and good is all any of us we need to get through life's mysteries and gaps because we don't have to understand life. We just have to understand God. And that's what it means to fear him. That's the one, that's one essential response to God. And it's been a response the preacher keeps commending to us over and over and over again within Ecclesiastes. The second one is to keep his commandments. Feeling the full brunt of life being Hebel, it confuses us. It obscures what we're supposed to do next. It dazes us, kind of. Because we want to protect ourselves. We, we want to get what we want out of life. And so the preacher reminds us, especially in that, follow God and what he says. Do what honors God and take that next faithful step, especially when life doesn't add up. He gives us that next faithful step. And trust God to bring the good that we actually need to enjoy life. Remember what the teacher preacher told us early on about stopping this chasing after life and starting to receive it from God. He says, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. To keep God's commandments is to please him. And along with it comes this surprise of good things coming from him. Wisdom, knowledge, joy. And, all, and to fail to honor God ultimately means gathering up for those who would honor God eventually. Now we're not told exactly what that mechanism is here in Ecclesiastes. Only to trust that God is big enough to make it happen. And we get glimpses of this in the scriptures. And, you know, like Mordecai receiving the king's signet ring from Haman himself. We even gain greater assurances from Jesus when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Keep his commandments. Trusting God to bring the good that we need to enjoy life, the preacher says. And so the, repeatedly, the preacher has been telling us to honor God and enjoy your life. 
Enjoy the good things that God has brought your way, especially when everything else is just, isn't perfectly good. Enjoy the slivers of good he gives you. When we were putting this series together, Neil commented that we have a gift theology in Ecclesiastes here. He's right. God gifts us good. And so we should receive it like we do with any Christmas gift or any birthday gift, you know, with joy. So honor God and enjoy the work God has given you to do. I've had seasons where I've had too much to do and other seasons where I've had much too little to do. And I'll tell you, it's better to be busy with work and feel the exertion of it than to have none of it. Follow God and enjoy your time off and those vacations that God has given you as well. Honor God and enjoy the food and the drink and the meals that God gives you with family and friends. Obey God and enjoy your friends that God has given you for good times and for bad times to buoy you through both. Honor God. And wives, enjoy your husband. And husbands, enjoy your wife. Enjoy the spouse that God has given you, including the romance, the partnership, the conversation, and the sex. It's in the scripture. <laughs> Obey God and enjoy the creature comforts God brings your way. The music in the car as you're driving down the road. The slippers that you get to put on your feet. The warm showers that we get to take. And the joy of running water in our house. Keep his commandments. Trusting God to bring the good. Which we're to receive with joy. That's the second response. Preacher has repeated in Ecclesiastes. And the third and last is to believe God will bring every deed into judgment. Whatever is going on in the gaps that we don't understand, in the mysteries of our life, in the mysteries of this world, we're to trust that God is the author from beginning to end, and we can count on him to be just at the end of it all. Whether obedience or disobedience, Whatever use or misuse of God, God's good, God's goods, gifts, yeah. we can count on God to be just. Remember how the preacher put it earlier. He said, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. God will right all the wrongs. He will punish what people have done in sin and foolishness. He will restore what has been broken or lost. He will reward people for obedience and wisdom. There's a time for all of that. It's just that it's on God's timeline, not ours. This keeps in mind that God is not a helicopter parent who immediately corrects whatever happens. But neither is he an absentee parent who abandons everything and just kind of lets it go on its way. God is a present parent, allowing things to develop so that his people would learn and grow and gain strength with his presence nearby to steady them and to keep them from being crushed. 
And so trusting God to bring every deed into judgment means that we'll stay accountable for all those other responses we have to him. Something that the preacher has also repeated. I mean, in the mysteries of life, we won't just believe that God is authoring the story, but also that we don't need to lash out in despair because God will right the wrongs within those mysteries. And in keeping his commandments, we don't just receive the good that he brings, but also make sure they're not misused them or refuse them. That's the bow on this book of Ecclesiastes. Life doesn't always make sense. Cause and effect are not the order of the day because life is hebel. And when we bump our head against that reality, because we're going to bump our head beyond this series, right? Right? Yeah. This is to prod us. Not to give full vent to our desires as if it has no meaning and it doesn't matter anyways, nor to curl up in a fetal position and just give up. We're to look up. We're to anchor ourselves to God by fearing him, keeping his commandments, and believing him to be just. After all, we sit here on Palm Sunday that, as Derek would say, was so Ecclesiastes. I mean, everything on Palm Sunday seemed to make sense that Jesus would come as this humble king, riding on a donkey as a solution to the, and the cheers of the people. But even his life was Hebel here on this side of eternity. To the point that it didn't make sense come Friday when Jesus was crucified through the travesty of the courts and the injustice of the courts. But then Easter comes, and we realize all along God was sovereignly working in the mystery of his son dying and rising to be faithful and just with our sin, with our death, with this world's evil. And so we can trust this God when life doesn't make sense. We can anchor ourselves in faith to him because his son went through it for us and was broken by it so that we wouldn't be. So let's make that our prayer in this coming week and in this coming season, shall we? Let's pray. God, in so many ways, life feels like it does not add up. And Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to us. I pray that you would come to us and remind us of what you have been saying all along in Ecclesiastes when we want to give up because so often I want to give up. Or I just want to think that it has no meaning. God, would you come to us in your grace and remind us again that in many ways, life is not going to add up on this side of eternity. Cause and effect is not the order of the day. But in that, God, that we would be awestruck by you and your sovereignty and your goodness to trust you in the mysteries that we face. That we would follow you when everything else is dark. We would follow you with that next step you'd have and enjoy the good that we can expect you to bring. Even if it's just a sliver of it, we'll look for it. 
And God, we believe you to be just. And so we'll we'll account our lives that way. And we will trust you in the mysteries that you will act that way at the end of all things. Give us that grace. Give us that perseverance so that you might receive glory in our lives and that we really truly might have the joy of knowing you, trusting you, hoping in you, and then when it all shakes out, worshiping you at the end of the day. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.